During our little summer interlude of no podcasting, uh, <laughs> some people talked about the NBA. Um, the NBA is a sport that doesn't actually exist when there are games. It only exists when there aren't games, like during the day and when there are trades overnight and during the offseason, because all people seem to care about in the NBA is free agency signings and room exceptions and bird rights and all that kind of crap. Um, but one thing that happened that I thought was interesting was that um, Kemba Walker has signed with the Boston Celtics to play for Coach Brad Stevens. Um, Kemba Walker was the uh, the winner of one of the worst games in the history of the NCAA tournament, I would say. How about the and whole sport? Pr- almost certainly the worst finals championship game ever. Um, he was the winner, and Brad Stevens, his now soon-to-be coach, or I guess he's his coach now, was the loser with Butler. UConn won that game 53-41 in 2011. Um, in that game, Butler shot 18.8%, including a remarkable 3-for-31 on two-pointers. We brought this up before, I think, in the podcast, but it, it's with UConn joining the Big East, which now contains Butler, with Kemba Walker joining the Celtics and coached by a former Butler head coach. It feels appropriate to just stroll down memory lane um, to discuss this monstrosity one more time. It's the game so bad we want to forget it, but we also don't want to forget it because it's so bad, so we want to appreciate it. And this is really, I mean, this is the type of game that makes us appreciate the strides college basketball has made in the last few years to make the game more exciting because this game was unwatchable, even though we both watched it. And here we are. And it's pretty bad. And it wasn't a close game. It didn't even matter the fact that it was re- redeeming by its close. Uh, UConn won outscored by 15 points in the second half against Butler to win going away. And it was just really, really tough to watch. Imagine shooting three for 31 on two-point field goals. That's just insane. A couple, I guess it was one season earlier, uh, West Virginia had a game in the Elite Eight against Kentucky and Syracuse where they led at the half and eventually actually won and beat John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins and Eric Bledsoe's Kentucky team. Um, in the first half, they did not make a single two-point shot, but they made uh, maybe eight, six to eight three-point shots plus some free throws. Um, and, uh, and here's another tie-in right there. West Virginia had an, on its team the wayward shooting Joe Missoula, who won, went to my high school, and two, is now a coach, assistant coach, for the Boston Celtics. How do you like that? I do like that. By the way, the two-point field goal percentage for Butler in that game was uh, 9%, 9.7%. Second lowest in any game since 1996-97. Mm. Yeah. That's that's not good. Arkansas Pine Bluff on 12-29-15 played uh, Missouri and shot... Uh, let's see here. What did they shoot? They shot uh, six, 6%. <laughs> Well, uh, I guess in, um, Arkansas Pine Bluff is probably happy that their effort against the Tigers uh, was nearly matched in a much more high-profile event because, as you know, um, Missouri loves company. Double bonus the rest of the way. Double bonus as well. right, two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Welcome to episode 30 of the Double Bonus Podcast. We're back from another one of our summer hiatuses. Is it hiatus or hiati? Hiati. Hi- <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like a XFL jersey. Uh, anyway, uh, Brendan, <laughs> along with Brendan DeRocher, I'm Tom Borstein. We are talking about college basketball in the dog days of summer, which are great for baseball and not so fast for college basketball news. So it's hot in New York. It's hot a lot of places in the world. Europe's cooled off, luckily. But, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, I would say, a moderately busy season for college basketball for summer, as far as summers go. Some news, some transfers, some clouds of doom hanging over certain programs. Uh, but, Brendan, how are you enjoying college basketball? What was the last game you watched on YouTube? Um, well, let me check on YouTube right now. Um, <laughs> usually it shows you your most recent... Uh, most recent watches, um, so it's a, probably a good uh, opportunity to do that. I did this morning actually watch um, a clip of Seinfeld. Um, that doesn't that sound like about, 
<laughs> that was about how, um, well, I guess the trivia question, I'm sure you know this, but basically, wh- what does George say is the pesto of cities in the episode The Busboy? Oh, that's an old one. Uh, I don't know. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm rusty. Seattle, Seattle is the oh, pesto yeah, that of that cities. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of, well, here's a tie-in. Seattle has one of the top, recruit, well, top recruits in the country for in a couple of years from now whose dad went to Washington and whose mom went to Washington, and they were both um, uh, great athletes at, at the University of Washington. Um, let me see if I can find his name. Paolo something or other. Um, but we get the Seattle. Paolo Bonchero. It's a good name. He goes to, yeah, he's a power forward at O'Day High School, 6'9", 235. It's a Paolo forward. Uh, I, I got it. I got it. Um, so I'm looking through my, my history of videos watched. We've got some uh, Revolutionary War documentaries. We've got some David Bowie, London 1984 Olympics documentary. So even You can tell it's a slow college basketball season. Even Brendan's oh, recent here it is. YouTube here it history, is. hasn't it? Doesn't Best mean. moments of the Big East 2013 to 2019. So that was, the, that was a 22-minute, 31-second video by a round table time that I watched uh, at some point somewhat recently. Um, yeah. Prior to that, it was, uh, yeah, it's been a little slow. I, I watched, uh, oh, that's that's an NBA game, 1993 NBA Finals Game 6 intro. The, the, tr- um, the NBA, you started yeah. the show by trashing. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. Well, intro- Here we go. Um Kadari Richmond, six foot five point guard, who was a senior last year at uh, South Shore High School in uh, I think that's in Long Island, right? I watched uh, some highlights of him. I don't know why. Maybe he's being recruited by Providence or someone. South Shore High School, that's in Long Island, Southside, right? Or, on Long Island. Southside High School is Long Island. I'm not sure about South Shore. Uh, Long. Uh, Auburn. Oh, this is all the way the Final Four. The Auburn Michigan State uh, Scout video. There you from, go. Um, yeah. So anyway, South uh, there you go. High School is actually in Brooklyn, which is we can have the debate oh. about whether Brooklyn's in Long Island or on Long Island or not, but it's in Canarsie, so I would say not in the traditional uh, definition of Long Island. And tie it all together. I used to teach uh, middle school in Canarsie, not high school, but That's, middle school. Then you should have known where South Shore High School was. Anyway. Yeah, I was, I was confused. Anyway, 2013, so, 2019, Big East. Interesting, you mentioned that because yeah. starting in 2020, the Yukon Huskies will be back in the Big East paying their way, begging their way back to a good basketball conference. And I know, Brendan, as a Providence fan, you were probably very conflicted about this, or maybe you're not conflicted, but UConn thought basically that football would be the way to go, and they were, what's the word, dead wrong. <laughs> and yeah, now here they are, abandoning football for the, in the AAC. They're not abandoning the program altogether, but they're going to be in the Big East in basketball and almost all other sports starting in 2020. Yeah, UConn goes the route, slightly similar route to UMass, where U- UMass went from being Division One AA or, or FCS team in football to FBS team in football, but joining the Mid-American and staying in the Atlantic 10 for other sports. I, I don't know that they've announced, or I haven't seen where they announced where UConn's football program is going to land. I assume it's also going to land in a conference like the Mid-American or the Conference USA. Um, and, you know, UConn thought and I think rightfully so, their best shot of making it into a, a quote-unquote Power 5 conference was to have a good football program. And they actually had a decent football program for a while. Um, they made, um, I think, a Fiesta Bowl or something, and they had they a new stadium. And uh, But the program has been really awful the last couple of years, like, um, like Columbia, like old-school Columbia bad. Um, and Columbia, the university, not the uh, nation. Um <laughs> And so I, you know, I have a lot of thoughts, a lot, and I am definitely conflicted. Um, on the one hand, you know, basically this feels like a lifeline the Big East is giving UConn, but let's not pretend that the Big East is a charitable organization that's out to make that for what's best for UConn. They're out for what's best for the Big East, and you can this, you can say whether it's right or wrong, but the Big East saw several other conferences going to a twenty-game conference schedule, which is hard to do in a ten-team league. Um, they saw a, a Madison Square Garden. And a Fox Sports uh, contracts that were going to be up soon, well, relatively soon, the next five or ten years, and TV ratings on Fox Sports at least that weren't very good, although the attendance at the Garden for the for the Big East tournament has been quite good, um, and said this is not a bad compromise. Now, yes, it's the first school uh, in the league, the newly formed league that has a, a FBS football program. Yes, it's the first school in the league that has. Um, 
uh, that is public. And the uh, the other ten, you have nine Catholic schools, and you have Butler, which is uh, I think non-sectarian, but uh, but private. Um, and it doesn't really extend its geographic footprint, which a school like say Gonzaga would have, although that would have been an unwieldy geographic footprint. Um, so I think that the Big East is not doing this out of any charity towards UConn. You know, as a Providence fan, this puts another this puts a, a great rivalry back in the Big East for Providence. UConn um, recently refused to play the Friars after they left. I mean, both. I guess I'm not sure who refused to play whom, but certainly UConn didn't want to play Providence. They played. Um, Villanova, they played Syracuse, they played, I think, Georgetown, they might have even played St. John's, but they didn't play Providence in non-conference games, but now they'll be playing twice a year. Um, it's now the two closest schools in the Big East, besides uh, Seton Hall and St. John's, are Providence and UConn, so there are a lot of Providence fans who are somewhat frustrated with the uh, how that might affect recruiting. Um, but, so, I, you know, I think that you know, I might have been wanting to be stubborn. Maybe I don't know who voted for, to, for whether it was unanimous or not. I doubt it was unanimous. Maybe publicly unanimous, but privately there was some kvetching. Uh, but I could certainly think that a school like Providence might not have been that interested in adding UConn uh, to the league. Um, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a top 50-ish, probably top 50 now that's in the Big East program. And uh, it has obviously four national titles. Um, established rivalries and um, a really good fan base that will make it more expensive for me to go to games at the Big East tournament. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest effect is the secondary market uh, uh, price hike that you may have until Connecticut gets eliminated. Uh, Connecticut is under was under Dan Hurley last year, started like gangbusters, then obviously fell off the face of the earth. They finished 16 and 17, lost to Houston by what is this, 39 points in the American tournament. Um, of course, the year before that, they were under uh, Mr. Ali, and he was quote-unquote fired for cause. They're still sorting that out, I believe. Uh, they really fell off precipitously. They won the title in 2014 and really haven't been uh, the same since. So the question I guess I have, another question I have is who needed who more? Did Connecticut need the Big East more to kind of get just better scheduling and better logistics and better just environment for it? It's tough, much easier to sell. Uh, recruits on playing in the Big East with these teams in the Northeast playing the Garden guaranteed once a year plus you get some trips to New York for Seton Hall and St. John's um, so I feel like they needed the Big East more than the Big East needed them because the Big East has done pretty well without Connecticut they've won two national titles and have had some pretty good showings from other teams uh, but it is like it is definitely in my mind a mutually beneficial uh, move yeah I think you'd have to consider it mutually beneficial for both leagues you know the AAC had been getting some pub recently as being as good or nearly as good as the Big East. The, the actual numbers don't really no. uh, say that at all, especially the bottom half of the league is much worse. Uh, the top half of the league is, you know, maybe comparable, which, of course, is the part of the league people probably most care about. Um, but it puts more distance between the Big East and the AAC. The AAC may add another team. Uh, there's rumors they might add a team like uh, VCU, um, BYU, uh, it depends on where, you know, I don't think I've seen anything definitive on that. Um, for, for UConn, you know, a week later, a week after this happened, they uh, announced uh, sanctions against uh, UConn, which is basically some recruiting um, penalties and scholarship limits and, and that sort of thing for uh, some things Kevin Ollie did that were against the rules. They were fair, seemed like fairly minor vol- violations when it com- compared to like tens, fifteen, twenty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars and giving recruits. It was more like, you know, rules that are in place for a good reason, but rules that, you know, probably people turned a blind eye to. But, you know, what happens is, and I mean, I'm not sure it's 100% true, but based on what I've heard, that UConn wanted to fire him. They didn't want to pay like a $10 million buyout, so they fired him for cause, and the cause was um, violating the NCAA bylaws. So they basically self-reported violations that Kevin Ollie committed in order to get out from under like a $10 million buyout. Um, so, you know, they ratted on themselves to save themselves a lot of money. And now that they, it has been proved that this is, this has happened, or at least the NCAA says it's happened, you know, whether a court of law will care about that is unclear, but, you know, Kevin Ollie is suing for the, that, uh, buyout and UConn now says, well, the official body that governs our sports says that he cheated and therefore firing for cause is justified. Um, so I think, that's an interesting aspect of it. That a week bef- a week after they were invited into the league, they were came down with uh, 
violations, which is not the first time they've had violations. Of course, the very last of the old, quote-unquote, old Big East tournaments, UConn did not play because they had violated APR rules, um, and people were very sad for uh, Jim Calhoun and Kevin Ollie wanted them to get uh, allowed in in the last minute, but it didn't happen, and, and I was like, I was fine with that personally. Uh, but Jim Calhoun the other, was suspended in 2011 yeah. for three games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was separate from the APR stuff mm-hmm. too so like i don't think i think connecticut's had a sudden sudden attack of ethics if they're self-reporting these things it's obviously it's pretty transparent as you said what they're doing and i don't really think that um it's fair to ollie they fired him because he was underperforming the team was going in the wrong direction that's pretty clear yeah under kevin ollie of course um and i this is like the fifth time i had to log into ken palms <laughs> since the podcast started but in his first year they uh, didn't make the tournament they went 20 and 10 the last year in the big east they made the tournament in part because they were not allowed to for APR rules. Um, it, w- they were, it would have been the bubble if if not for the APR violations. And then as a seven seed, um, they won the NCAA tournament, of course, with Shabazz Napier in 2014. 2015, they that was their first year in the American. They were 32 and eight overall, 12 and six in the in the Big e, the AAC. 2015, they were 10 and eight in the AAC. Didn't make the tournament. They were 2015 overall. 2016. They made the tournament and won a game yep. as a nine seed. Lost to Kansas in Des Moines. Uh, yeah, yeah. They beat Colorado, a not very good Colorado team, but did beat Kansas. And then those last two years, they went 16 and 17, 9 and 9 in conference, 14, 18, 7, 11 in conference, finishing 96th and 179th in Ken Palm. And of course, those are the two worst Ken Palm ratings they've had since the advent of the. The Ken Palm system, except for Dan Hurley last year, is actually 98th. So their three worst Ken, Ken Palm ratings have been the last three years. Um, and, in fact, their fourth worst was also Kevin Ollie in 2015. So he was fired for cause of being a bad coach. Um, <laughs> but that's not how the But contract. that's not a cause that can get you out of the uh, the buy-in. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, you look at it, it's it's, it's for a variety, variety of reasons. Recruiting, you know, national prestige of being in the Big East. Uh, relative to the AAC, but if you look at the home schedule for UConn last year in conference, and this is a conference that kind of waits the schedule to have more of the top teams playing each other. These were the home games that the UConn fans saw in conference. UCF ended up being a pretty good team, making the NCAA tournament, winning a game. SMU, which was mediocre, not very good. Tulane, which was terrible. Wichita State, which had a run the postseason, but was not good most of the year, didn't make the tournament. East Carolina, which was terrible. Houston, which was quite good. Cincinnati, which was quite good. And then South Florida and Temple, which didn't make, neither one of them made the NCAA tournament. So you had basically Houston, Cincinnati, and UCF. And then the next best game was probably Wichita State, uh, which again, last year, they finished pretty strong, but they were, they were a terrible team most of the season. And then this year, first of all, not only, it's like, it's one thing to say, okay, UCF was good, but is there like a UConn, UCF? Like, is there any draw to UCF? Like this year, even if, like Providence or St. John's or, you know, even Marquette or Butler is not as good as UCF was last year. The home game against one of those teams at UConn will be a bigger draw for fans and for uh, TV eyeballs than, um, than they are for, uh, than they would have been for UCF and certainly for SMU and Tulane and East Carolina. Uh, I mean, Houston, Cincinnati is one thing. And even there, Cincinnati, there's no natural rivalry with Houston. No. It's just they happen to be a good team. It's like a, it's like a non-conference game. You're like, oh, Houston's in town. They're pretty good. Let's go watch them. It's not like, hey, we have any kind of built-up years of rivalry. And, yes, it may have happened over time, but it's hard to go from the rivalries of the Big East. Of course, Syracuse is not in the conference anymore. Pitt is not in the conference anymore. But you still have Villanova and Georgetown, which are traditional rivals of UConn, not to mention St. John's and Providence, which are fairly traditional rivals as well. Um, so it's definitely a win for the UConn fans. It's a win for UConn, and it's almost certainly a win for the Big as a whole, even if it um, seems like kind of a bailout from my jaded perspective. Yeah, and just one thing. You found this tweet from Paint Touches on Twitter comparing uh, the Big East and the AAC since the um, Reformation, so to speak, which started with the 2013-2014 season. Uh, the adjusted efficiency margin, or the efficiency margin for... Um, the Big East last year was its worst in the new quote-unquote um, format, and it was still better than any AAC margin uh, that they had, which is in fact in 2014 when they had Louisville coming off the national title um, mm-hmm. the year after that. And yeah, the Big East is averaged being three and a half in Ken Palm, like among conferences, and the Big East, sorry, the AAC has managed uh, average 7.2. So it's basically been 
you know, yeah, that's in ranking, yeah. Solid three, four leagues ahead, given like you know, uh, just the way things work. So the Big East is a better league. It's good for UConn. It'll be good for their scheduling, their recruiting. Um, it'll make their scheduling a lot easier uh, for going forward. You would think they don't have to necessarily try to stack their non-conference schedule because they have so many cupcakes in the uh, conference schedule. So it's going to be good for UConn and. Yeah, we'll see how that, that program's got a lot of work ahead of it. So we'll see how it does, but this will probably help it even if it makes it a stiffer challenge in the short term to win some games. Yeah, and we'll see how that, we'll see how it goes in general. Uh, last, maybe the last Big East related uh, note, uh, the Pan Am games begin Wednesday. That's tomorrow, the 31st, as we're recording. Um, in Lima. Yeah, in Lima, Peru. And this year, the um, the Big East is representing the country in the Pan Am games. The U.S. has not won a Pan Am game since 1983, a team that had Michael Jordan on it. Heard of him. I'll tell you how long that's, that's been. Yeah. yeah, not even the one that was good at Penn, the one that was at uh, North Carolina. Um, do you think Michael or Jordan... Or the one that's good think, as a boxer. Do you think Penn Michael Jordan would play on this team? He was the Ivy League player of the year. you think he would play on this Big East team? Like in his prime? Yeah, not now, obviously, yeah. <laughs> not as like a 40 45 year old yeah. uh yeah i mean they don't really need guards which is what which is where <laughs> he would play but um, i wonder what michael jordan yeah, I, Penn is doing right now yeah I, I don't think he's worse than like colin gillespie or miles kale i think he probably is around as good as those uh, maybe not quite as good as those guys i don't know anyway so they're playing um and it's coached by Ed Cooley, assistant coach Kevin Willard at Seton Hall. Another assistant coach is Mike Martin, the, who's the head coach at Brown University. Um, and the team features four Providence Friars, um, A.J. Reeves and David Duke, who are entering their sophomore seasons, as well as Alpha Diallo, who's all Big East uh, second team last year, and Nate Watson, their big man. Other guys that you might want to watch, you can see the um, the games are streamed online somewhere. I'm not sure I've gotten really good information on that. Oh, ESPNU, ESPN Deportes, and ESPN3. So you can see him on, like, terrestrial channels. Uh, other, I mean, all the names you probably know. The players on this team are mostly players from Big East teams that are not taking foreign trips this year. The exception is Tyson Al- Tyshawn Alexander from Creighton because they are actually going, I think, to Australia. Um, but uh, they're, he's going to join the Creighton team midstream. And then Seton Hall actually is taking... Um, a trip as well, but it doesn't coincide with the Pan Am Games uh, tournament. Miles Powell and Miles Kale, uh, probably the two best players, or certainly Miles Powell is probably the best player on this team, um, uh, are on are on this roster, of course, with their head coach. Colin Gillespie of Villanova, as well as Jermaine Samuels. Those are two very good players at, at Villanova. Um, and then um, Mustafa Heron, the transfer from Auburn, who will be entering his second season at St. John's. Uh, I would assume the starting line would be something like Tachan Alexander at point guard, uh, with, I think Alpha Diallo and Jermaine Samuels will be at forward. Probably Nate Watson will start at center, and then I would guess Miles Power, of course, will be the two guard. Um, but Colin Gillespie might might factor in as well. Uh, a couple guys, just in case. I mean, this is kind of a deep cut, but Sean McDermott <laughs> of Butler and uh, Luan Pipkins of UMass, formerly and transferred to Providence as a grad transfer. They were originally on the roster, but both suffered minor, supposedly minor injuries. Um, in training camp, and so they were replaced actually only with one player with A.J. Reeves of Providence. And then finally, there's two players who actually graduated last year from Big East schools, but they need, I guess, some size. So Tyler Weidman, whose name matches his body type, he's 6'8", 240, from Butler, and Jeffrey Grossell, the uh, big seven-foot center from Creighton, will be there as well. And uh, I think that this team is not going to do that well, but... Uh, but it's. I hope that they don't get embarrassed, and because it'll be bad for the Big East. And I think that they do have. This is if all the conferences to have this year with returning players. This is a pretty good one to have. The Big East returns a lot of good players. So they play the Virgin Islands on Wednesday, the thirty first. Then Venezuela on August first, and then they play Puerto Rico on the second. I'm assuming. Then they play semifinal against another group mm-hmm. if they make it, and then the gold medal game the day after that. Yeah. It's only a five day tournament, kind of condensed. So. Yeah, yeah, Venezuela and uh, Puerto Rico figured to be probably pretty tough games. You would figure the Virgin Islands wouldn't wouldn't be that tough, but uh, um, and then Argentina, yeah, I guess looms we'll in the other group. That seems like they would probably be the favorite out of Argentina, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, and Uruguay. No Brazil, apparently. Yeah. By the way, Mike Jordan, assistant coach at Colgate. Mm. There you go. Ha- Hamilton, New York. Yeah. Col- Colgate, uh, I believe last year. 
Colgate and Brown were the two last like original. I'm not sure what year they cut it off at, but they call the, them the original um, NCAA teams, NCAA Division One teams. They they were the last two to not have won 20 games in a season, and they both did it last year. Colgate won 24, went to the NCAA tournament. Uh, you may recall they had um, a Northwestern transfer named Rapolas Ivanowskis, and they lost a fairly close game to Tennessee. And Brown made a, uh, got to 20. They went, they were 20 and 12 by getting into a postseason tournament and beating University of Alabama Birmingham in, I don't know what tournament this is. This is the something, something, something. The CIT, I don't know. It, it No one cares. But they got the 20 wins. So now there's no original NCAA teams without 20 wins, a 20-win season. Yeah. So should we move on to the uh... – <laughs> Coaches, coaches complaining about the recruiting calendar. Yeah, in other news, people complain about work situations. Yeah, um, someone call Ripley's. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you take. I feel like I want you to, to take most of this, but um, I'll kind of set it up a little bit for you. If you really want a really strong take on the changes that the Condoleezza Rice committee ended up suggesting and then implementing this year around the, recruit, the recruiting calendar. Um, you can listen to the CBS Ion College Football Podcast, where the last, I don't know, 47 podcasts have been <laughs> devoted to Gary Parrish serving as a mouthpiece for disgruntled college basketball coaches. Um, if he otherwise, we'll give you our kind of two cents here, but I want, I want to hear what Thomas is saying. I mean, so basically, they used to have multiple five day periods to recruit, uh, to evaluate recruits. And so now they have one, and it's Peach Jam was in North Augusta, South Carolina, which definitely seems like a place to put people in a bad mood. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so basically everyone comes and plays there, and the Condoleezza Rice committee that people are derisively uh, referring to basically shut down the rest of recruiting periods in July. So they basically have this period, and that's it. And there's these prospect camps that have sprung up, but no big names are going there, and they're not getting any attention. So... It's uh, not really giving the coaches enough time to evaluate players in like, an official setting, so they're all upset. And, of course, Gary Parrish is a reporter, and a good one. We like Gary Parrish. At least I do. I think Brennan does, too. And mm-hmm. so he is very – but he is also a reporter, so he presumably is very eager to take what the coaches say and, like, give a um, give a platform to it. So he carries favor with them when he wants has a question about what's going on with a recruit or with a NCAA case or what's going on with the, what's the story with this? He can call him. And since he did this, uh, since he like is a friend of them. So a friend of the show, as far as uh, publishing these complaints, uh, he'll get better information. So I guess the question is, is it really as bad as the coaches say it is anonymously, by the way, in these articles? And the answer is probably not right. I mean, it's probably does some good for the student athletes as the NCAA would call them, the athletes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it probably does make the coaches' jobs a lot harder and puts more risk uh, in them and uncertainty in them. So I can see why they're upset, but at the same time, I don't know. There are more things going on in college sports to get upset about than cutting in by a third or a quarter of the recruiting period over the summer when you have a lot of other ways to evaluate players right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with the hypothesis that this is probably not as good a system for coaches and maybe even for uh, most recruits as the old system. You know, I think that basically they wanted to remove some of the influence of the grassroots teams from the game, and it didn't be, it wasn't eliminated or even lowered that much in the first year, but I think it would take time anyway. And so it's not going to happen in the first year. It might take many years for it to happen. Um, and I, I do get that there's it's, it's, there's a black market going on, and no matter what you do, as long as there's a desire to have a black market, unless you have really strong enforcement, the black market will exist, whether you have grassroots tournaments that are sanctioned or grassroots tournaments that are not sanctioned. Um, and so I think that that is like the uh, the conundrum that the NCA refuses to pay, and, and I have mixed feelings on this as well, but to give like money for the likeness of players while coaches very, very much value and school companies very much value these players. So there's like a difference in value and that value has to go somewhere. And some of it will go to, co- to universities and coaches, but some of it will filter down to grassroots coaches and shoe companies and players, families and all that kind of stuff. Until that changes, until that calculus changes, it's, you can't, there's no system you can set up that doesn't have extreme enforcement that will prevent it from happening. That said, you know, there's something to be said for maybe a little bit less basketball for kids during the summer. 
And there was a lot of discussion, I'm not sure if I would call it evidence, a lot of discussion that all of the grassroots playing during the summer, while it might help players get recognized by college teams and therefore get scholarships to college, it also can lead to a lot of injuries and um, shortened careers. So, you know, I'm not sure that the NCAA committee, the Basketball Infractions Committee or whatever the committee was called, the Special Condoleezza Rice Committee, Blue Ribbon Panel, explicitly spoke to that, but um, but there is a notion that this protects the players to some extent. Um, you know, Gary Parrish would say, and I think that this has, he has a point here too, is that the point of these, the point of the summer basketball is to get players noticed by teams so they can get in the, in the best situation possible so that both the player and the coach can evaluate properly what school he or she, he should go to. And this makes that harder. Um, and so you have more players who actually either don't get discovered or end up in the wrong fit. Um, and so I don't disagree with that, but I do think that some of the things they did might mitigate other factors and maybe over time things will this new system will actually be okay yeah just to give some numbers on what the cut down was it was 21 days before this um and most of them were in july um there were 15 days in july and there were a couple in april after the final four um there were six in april and 15 in july now they're just two and a half days in april and four in july so you go from 21 to six and a half so that's a big cut so maybe they cut too much too soon. Um, and these other, they, I think also the replacements, these high school centric camps that are run by state federations that don't draw big players are not even coming close to replacing these. So that is another thing. Maybe the NCAA overestimated how many good players and coaches will want to be at these other uh, kind of smaller camps. Uh, so maybe that has something to do with it. But yes, there's a, a lot to balance out. And there, these kids are playing basketball all the time. They play all season during the year. They play a lot of games. Since high school, you play back-to-back nights probably. You play two or three games a week, I would say. And then you're playing with your AAU team. You're playing on this. And it's just all year long. So it's a mental t- takes a mental toll and a physical toll. And so the more sports you play, after a certain point, you're probably going to increase the injury. Uh, risk. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's good to play some sports. So you're not you're in shape, a healthy amount, but not an unhealthy amount. So I don't. Yeah, I think there are a lot of little things here and there. But basically, I think the coaches are very eager to complain. And I think if anything, the players suffer more than the coaches because now it just makes it hard for the players to get discovered. Whereas the coaches, it's not really going to make their lives that much more difficult. Yeah, and, and not to be paternalistic about it and say, well, the players should be playing that much and the NCAA should protect them. But you know. Uh, there is, you know, if the NCAA doesn't step in and the parents aren't stepping in and, and then, you know, a lot of these players, like if you watch some of these documentaries, you can find them on YouTube, you can find them on Netflix, you can find them all over the place that follow some of these top prospects. There was one um, that featured several players from the L.A. team. Let me find the name of the Arizona player that was heavily featured. A little point guard that just graduated from Arizona. Um, let me pull him up so I can get his name right. Uh, I guess he graduated two years ago. He was in the 2018. Yeah, Parker Jackson Cartwright. All right. He was a four-year player at um, at Arizona, and he and his AAU team, very good AAU team, were featured out of um out of LA in a documentary. And like, it's crazy. Like the parents seemed eager, and like they were like, it wasn't like they were absent. They were definitely out for his best interest. But he was constantly banged up. Should he play through injury? Which coaches are watching? You know, also wanting to win too. Um, and these players are being pushed. We see this in college baseball, too, with pitchers. You know, the priority for these pitchers is, or for the coaches, and also sometimes for the pitchers, is to, you know, win the College World Series or win the SEC Championship um, and not so much protect players for, um, for the drafts um, so that they can get increase their earning potential. Now, that, some of that has changed recently, and even some of these co- uh, college baseball pitching coaches have been hired by major league organizations because they've been innovative in a lot of different ways so things are changing but i don't think there necessarily is incentive for grassroots coaches to implement changes that cuts back on workload and cuts back on travel because they get paid based on how these teams do and how much they travel and um and also they they want to get exposure for their players the more players get exposed the more players that go to division one schools the more they can say hey we graduated all these players to memphis and arizona and kentucky and ucla etc etc yeah. No, yeah, I think college baseball coaches are getting a little more cognizant of that just to shift mm-hmm. it to a baseball first stance for a second, but mm-hmm. it's uh yeah, it's a lot of basketball for these kids. Yeah.
Yeah. Um, let's move on. A couple – speaking of recruiting violations and the FBI investigation that led to the committee, that led to the changes in the recruiting calendar, um, NC State was the first school to get a major notice of, of allegations. They published the whole thing in full in part because everyone associated with that, both the athletic director and the coaching staff, are all gone. Mark Goffrey is now the coach at Cal State Northridge. Dennis Smith, the player involved, is now with the New York Knicks, um, which is, I guess, they're slightly better than a good Division One uh, NCAA team. So um, Everyone says then, the players don't get punished for this after they leave school, but he seems like he's being punished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having to spend his formative years um, paying expensive rent and uh, playing for an inept organization in, uh, in the heart of New York City. Um, yes, yeah, and NC State's one of they said what five or six teams we get level one accusations, bef- uh, notice of allegations before the uh, end of the summer. So one down, and four or five to go. Right? That's what. The, yeah, I think he hinted yeah, at. I think we talked about that last time yeah. about why the NCAA decided to telegraph this. Um, there, there's kind of a little game theory. If you put it out early, it's not as big of a shock later, or you can kind of, um, I, I don't know. Well, We'll see what happens if and when they announce a school like Louisville or Kansas or Maryland or, you know, USC, um, Auburn, you know, that's a Final Four team. It's not a big name, but it's a Final Four team. Oklahoma State Oklahoma State and USC are probably going to have two of the best recruiting class in the country, not this year, but next year. So it's, um, it's going to be interesting to, to see if that has any effect. You know, if Oklahoma State, which has, um, I think, the number two recruit in the country, his uh, relative is now an assistant coach, and they have a inroads into another top recruit. And then, same thing with USC, whether the, any violations there affect um, the, those players. Uh, but we don't know. Uh, DePaul recruiting violation. I'll try to understand this story. Well, I just thought it was funny that DePaul, which stinks, somehow was also cheating. That was the main point, including this. <laughs> but yeah, it was it's, a little confusing. It seems like to me that this guy, a DePaul assistant, um, they t- basically, when he was a, a head coach in high school, paid Brian Bowen's father to send Brian Bowen, the one who was involved in the Louisville scandals, to this high school where he coached. And then I guess he got hired by DePaul. And I, you could see how that, if he was thought to be tied to Brian Bowen, how that would make sense. It's it's a strange it's a strange one. He's not he wasn't a, a, an assistant coach at uh, DePaul at the time. Uh, the, like now, he, he wasn't like he just got fired because of this. Um, Brian Bone didn't go to DePaul, didn't play college basketball. One wonders of whether him deciding not to go to DePaul and then him deciding to go to Louisville and then it, him being the center of the, of the FBI investigations led to DePaul saying, maybe we should let go of the coach who maybe paid him money in high school and then we hired to maybe get him later. So There's also, there's also something where the DBO, Director of Basketball Operations, um, lived with a prospect to help ensure the player did the work necessary to meet the NCAA eligibility requirements, which also violates NCAA rules, so that might have been in there too. It's just a weird story. Not that entertaining, but DePaul, terrible, and was still cheating. So even the bad teams are cheating. That's the yeah, and, story. And DePaul, uh, again, figures to be not very good this year. DePaul and St. John's, um, as well as uh, Butler, figure to be the three teams that don't aren't likely to be NCAA tournament contenders this year, um, although Butler, I guess, has an outside chance. Uh, the other seven teams in the Big East all have, I think, would expect or think they should make the NCAA tournament. DePaul has not made the NCAA tournament since joining the Big East, actually. Uh, their last NCAA tournament was under Dave Leto, who's their coach right now, in 2003-2004. They joined the Big East two years later and have only ranked in the top 100 in Ken Palm three times, including two years ago, 99th, and prior to that, 2007 was the last time under old friend Jerry Wainwright. Uh, let's move on. Yeah. Um, NBA draft happened. Players were drafted. Um, the two things that I wanted to talk about, I thought it was interesting, is one, some of these players who declared but are not returning and did not get drafted. Uh, John Rothstein made several tweets to listed them. And then the second one is looking at a, a 2020 mock draft. I was looking at Sam Vicini's mock draft as a way to kind of think about some of the best players that are entering college basketball. First, I'm curious about your thoughts on like the, the John Rothstein list of players who weren't drafted and, and, um, but weren't declared early and, and now can't come back to school. I mean, that's um, one, a casualty of the system that's not super fair, but Shamori Pons obviously jumps out. Uh, 
didn't get drafted. It was a very good draft as far as college basketball players going. I'm trying to go back and see when there was the, the there were all the players taken in the first whatever I think 16 picks. Is that right? Uh, yeah, maybe till San Antonio or someone. Uh, to uh, the Pistons, they took Siku Dumboya, who is from. But everyone else played college basketball. Romeo Langford was the 14th pick, and he was. They all were in college uh, at that point. So it's a it was a good draft as far as the college players going to the top spot. Um, it's hard when you're one of these guys that just. Yeah, I guess you you hopefully have a backup plan. You play overseas, or you do something else, or try to get a a two-way contract or try to sign on with an NBA team and play in the D-League, but it's hard when you when you do this, and it shows you how good these um, teams are uh, that the NBA is and how hard it is that you can be someone like Shamori Pons or Tyus Battle or Lugans Dort and just pl- and play these games and just and not get drafted in two rounds, so it's tough, and uh, yeah, Deidre Glosson had a very good year didn't get drafted, that's kind of crazy, I mean, I know it's a the NBA is a change in league, and Dietrich Lawson is the type of player who plays much better at the college level, profiles much better as a college player than the NBA player, but he was very good on a Kansas team that made the Sweet 16 and was overly reliant on him, and he carried that team for good stretches of the season. So you'd think that one NBA team would take a chance on him, uh, but it didn't. So, uh, yeah, it's just a tricky situation. You hope that when players declare that they um, – they have a backup plan. Not, also, not every player who declares and doesn't get drafted made a mistake. Like, mm-hmm. maybe this is the peak of their value. Like, Dedrick Lawson's value is not going to be uh, enhanced by playing at Kansas another year. I might have maybe time it better with a different draft, but at the same time, you're still giving up a year of earnings and mm-hmm. uh, playing. Well, not at Kansas, I'm sure. He's <laughs> yeah. Paid well, but, but yeah, in theory, of course. But it's not necessarily a bad decision to come out and not get drafted. I think sometimes people miss that. They think, oh. He miscalculated, should have stayed at school. But, yeah, well, who knows if he gets drafted next year. So uh, it's a tricky situation. So I wouldn't kill the players. I just hope that they have good backup plans uh, and that things work out, that they can somehow make a living because they gave up their, their, as you would say, their money that they can make at college basketball. Yeah, I mean, my position generally is most of the players who, who declare and who stay in the draft know what they're getting into. And not from like, hey, buyer beware, but more like they literally know they're probably not going to get drafted. They may draft in the second round. They're going to end up in Europe, or they're going to end up in a two-way, or they're going to – some of them – some of these guys, I think uh, Nas Reed um, from LSU might have gotten a, a, guess, a partially guaranteed deal. Um, you know, as a ba- college basketball fan, it would be nice to see Lindell Wigginton on a what should be a pretty good Iowa State team. Dedrick Lawson, who, was, again, was an old kind of fourth-year junior because he transferred from Memphis on a, what should be a very good Kansas team. Zach Norvell coming back to Gonzaga to be maybe their best player. Um, Lou Dort, who kind of came in the scene out of nowhere last year, Arizona State, coming back again. Jonte Porter's crazy uh, because he was considered to be like a top 15 pick, um, and then he tore up his knee, uh, I believe it was a knee, last year. Um, Aubrey Dawkins had a great year, the son of Johnny Dawkins, who almost made that shot to beat Duke. Uh, Moses Brown, a very flawed player, but a, a great kind of freshman rebounder at uh, UCLA. Uh, Tyler Cook from Iowa. Like, these are fun players that I would have been fun to watch them in college basketball. But And certainly Nick Ward at Michigan State. Um, you know, there was clearly some falling out between him and the coaching staff. Um, he was always kind of in and out in the doghouse, even though I thought he was somewhat undervalued. He, he did struggle guarding the pick and roll, but was a very good offensive rebounding and offensive force um, for Michigan State when he could defend the pick and roll. But, um, you know, to me, it's like most of the – for those players on this list or who, who also went and are not on John Rothstein's list from June 21st who thought that they were going to get drafted or are disappointed with where they ended up, I feel bad for them. I hope they didn't get bad information. But at the same time, I think the majority of them – some of these guys actually would have told teams, don't draft me in the second round. I, I, I'm gonna, I want to be a free agent so I can negotiate my own contract. So there might be players in the second round who are actually disappointed and they got drafted, whereas players who, might, who didn't get drafted – um, might be actually in a better spot. Um, so yeah, I, I uh, don't know if you have any thoughts on uh, thoughts on that. Before you want you want to look at the 2020 mock draft. I think also 30 players last year, at least 30 players did not get drafted and played in the NBA last season. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's a death sentence. It just means you didn't get drafted. And if you're going to be the 50th pick, or or just not get and pick the, and get into a situation where you don't control versus um, having the agency to sign with the, your own team and 
pick a solution that's right for you and a situation that's right for you and have your agent work with you on that and like feel it out among coaches, it's almost better not to be drafted, as some players said. So, yeah, it's not a death sentence. It's tough to say. Who's the famous best undrafted player of all time? Ben Wallace? Um, Maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's not a death sentence, but it's obviously tricky. But there's a long list of players on Wikipedia of people who have not been drafted but have played in the NBA and played decent roles. So, yeah. Let's talk about the mock draft. Yeah, so um, the mock draft is a good proxy to talk about. Most of the top players are going to be incoming freshmen or the best returning players. Um, So I'm going to run through some of these guys. I'll just say their name and uh, the school, and then we can talk about who you want to talk about. So this is from San Vicente, the Athletic, who's one of the best, if not the best, draft evaluator, I think, out there. Um, James Wiseman, first overall pick, a 7-1 center at Memphis. Uh, Cole Anthony, the son of uh, Greg Anthony, 6'3 guard who's going to North Carolina. Anthony Edwards, who's a 6'5 guard who's at Georgia under Tom Crean. I'll go through the top 10. RJ Hampton is, is actually when we talked about in the previous podcast. He's going to play over, overseas in New Zealand, so he's not going to be in college. Uh, number five guy is a player from France. Number six is Jaden McDaniels, um, who is uncommitted. This is an article from committed. April, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Where's Jaden McDaniels? I, he's, at, he's going to Washington. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, He's going to join a really top recruiting class at Washington. He's a 6'11 forward. Um, another 7'7 player is another international player. Number eight, Scotty Lewis is going to be part of really, should be a really good team in Florida. I'll mention at this point in the podcast, Kerry Blackshear, who is the top, I would say the top transfer uh, on the market, a grad transfer from Virginia Tech, decided to go to Florida over some report at Kentucky as well as Tennessee. So Scotty Lewis joining um, Kerry Blackshear makes Florida probably a top 10 team. Precious Achua, uh, number nine, he's at Memphis. Number 10, Tyrese Max, he's going to Kentucky. And we see as you go down a little bit further, Isaiah Stewart's going to Washington, Nico Mann going to Arizona. Um, then you see the first returning player at number 13, uh, Ayo Desunmu, who's at Illinois, a, f- a freshman, uh, sophomore guard. And then Jalen Smith, another returning player um, at Maryland, who's a 6'10 center. So both the top two prospects, according to San Vicini, returning to college are both in the Big Ten. Uh, anything that sticks out from you, from them or other people on this list, obviously you go down, you see Trey Jones, who's going back to Duke, um, Tyrese Halliburton, who's going back to Iowa State, Jordan Ward, who's going back to Louisville, et cetera, et cetera. So I was, as we, t- we talked about the players who may have made a d- bad decision coming out, maybe, probably not, but very few players, it appears, made the incorrect decision to stay in college. The fact that Trey Jones uh, is one of the top players coming back, and he probably was the most surprising player that came back uh, in um in college basketball, obviously Jalen Smith is coming back from Maryland. Uh, I've seen one mock draft that's had Oche Abaji as the top uh, returning player in the NBA draft, the Kansas swingman. Hmm. Um, so I don't know how reliable those are, but he uh, he's very athletic, so people like him, but we'll see what happens. But yeah, it's going to be a lot of freshmen uh, in the sport this year. And obviously Memphis has a great recruiting class. Maybe Washington can be relevant and lift the tide in the, uh, the uh, Pac-12. Uh, Kentucky obviously has Maxi. So, and you know these things change really quickly because when we answered last year, Zion Williamson was not the consensus number one pick, and it was pretty clear early on that he should have been. Um, I don't think there's a breakout talent like him in this year's class, but it is interesting to see uh, how these things shake out and just how much turnover there is in the sport. Like the top ten players and that are going to be in the sport next year probably are a couple overseas guys and eight freshmen. So. If you look across multiple mock drafts, so is that good or bad? Well, we won't have to worry about it in two years, but um, it's a little—I don't know—it doesn't help the continuity, obviously, which is not necessarily college basketball's problem or the NBA's problem. It's not necessarily the NBA's problem, but it's, it doesn't help the uh, sometimes doesn't help the following of the sport, even if you agree with it. It's the right way to do things. Yeah, um, I counted eight or nine, um, I might have miscounted, returning college basketball players in San Vicente's first round. He has Devin Dotson, actually, from Kansas. He does not have Oche Abaji, um, in case you're interested. The, uh, Devin Dotson better learn how to draft. shoot better before he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you <laughs> to the NBA. Let me see if you I can find... Uh, yeah. Yeah, here is the... I want to see his 2019 mock draft, his first one uh, to, from last year to see how much changed. Um, hold on. I'm seeing June. 
Uh, let's see if I can find it. 28 draft. Now I want 2019 mock draft. Where's his first one? Sorry, this is this is riveting podcasting. Hey, um, it's going to lead to a good result. Yeah. Well, we'll see if I can find it. Um, well, let's just find his first. Here's here's the big board ranking that he put out November 5th. So very silly, the beginning of the college basketball season. Here were his top uh, top 10 players. Number one, R.J. Barrett. Went third. Went third. Yep. Number two, Zion Williamson. Went first. Number three, Nas Little. Uh, he went where? Uh, 25th. 25th, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Number four, Cam Reddish of Duke. Uh, he went, he fell too, right? Tenth. Uh, tenth, yep. Number five, Romeo Lankford. We discussed he went 14 to the Celtics. Yep. Uh, number six, Quentin Grimes. Whoops. Yep. Where did he transfer to? Uh, did he decide yet? I forget. Cal? That was, you got to, you know, I don't know where he transferred to. Uh, number seven, DeAndre Hunter. He went f- uh, he, fourth. Uh, he went to Houston, Quentin Grimes, by the way. Oh, Quentin Grimes to Houston, yeah. DeAndre, that's a big transfer. We'll see how he, he has sit out of year. Yeah. Number eight, Keldon Johnson. Uh, Johnson. Where do you go? Oh, uh, Cameron Johnson, eleventh. Keldon oh, Johnson. Oh no, Keldon Johnson. Keldon Johnson went 29th. Yeah. Number nine, Rui Hachimura. Ninth, nailed it. Boom. <laughs> and number ten, Daniel Gafford of Arkansas. Uh, he went 38th. And you'll notice there are some players on here that were in. Um, when you look at this, and again, this is before the season starts. This isn't even April. That were on John Rothstein's list of undrafted. Lewis King was 17th on his list. Chris Wilkes was 18th. We see Jarrett Culver who jumped up. Uh, obviously, Jonte Porter 21st didn't get drafted. Uh, we just mentioned him. Uh, Tyus Battle was 26th on his list and get drafted. Lindo Wigginton 28th. So, um, you know, basically, I, Carson Edwards went 32nd, didn't he? Carson Edwards went 33rd. Uh, he was 32nd on uh, on Sam's uh. board. So you can see basically the top four, four of the top five were lottery picks. Six of the top ten were lottery picks. Which that means four of the top ten were not lottery picks, including Daniel Gafford, who wasn't even a first-rounder, and Quentin Grimes, who is going to be back in school for a couple more years. So, um, And in terms of like impact on the season, um, obviously R.J. Barrett, Zion Williamson um, – had a big impact. We talked a lot about Romeo Langford. I'm not sure how big an impact it was, and Nas Little. DeAndre Hunter was obviously a huge player for the season, and Rez was Rudy Hachimura. Uh, Darius Garland ended up not playing very much, and he did bowl bowl. Um, so the guys that end up making the season, you think about Carson Edwards, Jarrett Culver, um, and obviously, you know, Diane Williamson was with the player of the season. Um, not all of them are going to be lottery picks, and uh, they will, you know, Cash Wh- Cash's Winston, for instance, probably wasn't even on this list, and he was one of the best players in college basketball last year. So. Yeah, I think that this goes to show the NBA has a reason for its age limit and its free evaluation in like competitive environments of its mm-hmm. players that aren't getting paid by NBA teams, and you can see how much a difference a year makes uh, for a talent evaluation. I mean, obviously, again, we'll see it make. We'll see. We'll people can review the 2019 NBA draft in three years and see which teams whiffed on who, and whether you know R.J. Barrett shakes out, whether DeAndre Hunter was a reach at four, was you know, or, or not. We don't think he was, but like, did it turn out to be a great fourth overall pick or a bad fourth overall pick? So you can see why the NBA likes to have a year of college basketball under its players' belts before they go into the league, and it's really hard to predict. So don't be surprised if there are a lot of differences. Uh, we're doing this podcast in uh, 2020. Uh, when we look at the, we recap San Vicini's uh, mock draft. Then, yeah, uh, let's hit on a, a few more player movements and then talk about Pill Carmody, and then uh, we'll call it a podcast. Um, we talked about Kerry uh, uh, Blackshear ending up at Florida. Um, Teddy Allen, former West Virginia player, was dismissed from the team at Wichita State after transferring. And he ended up signing with Western Nebraska Community College, so definitely a precipitous fall for hit from him. Hopefully, he bounces back. Um, you know, obviously, probably some bad decisions going on with him, and uh, as a very young person, we don't want to see that. Seventh Woods, um, he obviously played behind some really good guards at North Carolina. Kobe White last year was going to play behind Cole Anthony this year, ended up transferring to South Carolina. Will sit out a year. And play for Frank Martin, and then maybe you have some thoughts. Kansas landed Dewan Harris as another guard on a team that uh, I guess needed guards. They are kind of big, heavy, right? Uh, they are yes. I think they're it's good. Kansas has done a good job of just kind of getting the next best available players. So Dewan Harris was good. Uh, had a good Peach Jam 
uh, earlier this year, and they now have Jalen Wilson and Tristan Aruna, and then Christian Braun and Isaac McBride. Um, so these aren't like those are some four and three star recruits. Kansas usually obviously gets five star recruits, but uh, they have done a good job uh, of kind of getting everybody back or that they want back, including uh, Dotson and Azubuke. And they have Abaji for a full season, so they're going to piece it together pretty nicely, you would think. But the Big 12 is obviously super tough. Um, but I think kind of Bill Self's done a very good job of incremental improvements after the season has ended, just trying to shore up his roster. So credit to him for that. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it all fits together. Um, it seems like not the best fit in terms of the the roster in general. I mean, what what the starting lineup would be right now? Devin Dotson, Abaji, Azabuki, um, and then where we fill out the last two spots? Do you think? Uh, McBride, and I'm not sure. That's tough to say. They have uh, we think. Yeah, it's tricky. McBride is that a guard or is that a forward? Guard or swing, I think. Okay, so then I guess maybe they could, they would start um, David McCormick. Yeah. Uh, as well, or they could start Marcus Garrett. Is he back? Oh yeah, Garrett. Garrett. Sorry, yes, I forgot about him. Garrett, Garrett will play. He's a very good defender and would be yeah. good there. They have um. Yeah, who else is looking at their roster? McCormick, Charlie Moore is gone. KJ Lawson's gone. Mitch Lightfoot will probably play more than he should. Um, so because he's gonna be a senior. So yeah. Um. And that leads us to the announcement of the Big 12 SEC Challenge matchups this year. Kansas will host Tennessee um, in a matchup that is just okay because of the fact that uh, you know Tennessee probably not going to be as good as they have been, um, losing Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield and Jordan Bone to the all to the NBA draft. But um, that game is on January 25th, along with all the other games. The big matchup is Kentucky going to Texas Tech. Uh, Texas Tech obviously lost some really good players too, like Jared Culver, but should also still be a top 15 team. Um, other matchups of note, K-State at Alabama, Iowa State should be pretty good at Auburn, good game. Baylor at Florida, LSU at Texas. Those are, are the ones that stick out. Maybe, maybe Mississippi State at Oklahoma. Do you have any, any overriding thoughts on, uh, on this, except for the fact that some of the really bad teams like like South Carolina and Vanderbilt are not going to be included, which is good for the SEC and probably good for the quality of the tournament. I mean, I'm, Kansas, Tennessee is kind of a um, disappointment. I know they're doing it off last year's schedule, but I feel like their last year's results, which have been a really good game, but I think it's going to be Kansas hosting Tennessee is tough. I think I, I guess I they try to stagger because last year in this event Kansas played at Kentucky. Kansas is host to Kentucky a lot. It's, I'm glad they're not doing Kansas Kentucky again. I think Kansas and Kentucky may play in the Champions Classic, so uh, that might be why. Uh, Iowa State-Auburn's a good game, and Baylor-Florida should be a good game. So it would have been kind of cool to see Kansas-Auburn in a rematch, but I guess they don't want to do that. So, uh, yeah, it's fine. It's it's a good event, and it's a nice little break in the conference schedule. I've come to like playing a big game against a good team, uh, not in your conference schedule, uh, and not in November. So, yeah. It used to be a lot more common if you look at the old schedules back in the 80s and early 90s to have in-season non-conference games. Um, but there also used to be a lot more, uh, a lot fewer teams in some of these conferences. The Big 12 also has a, a Big East challenge this year for the first time. Um, the big matchups there are Kansas at Villanova, um, also Texas at Providence, um, Marquette at Kansas State. For some reason, Texas, Texas Tech is playing at DePaul, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Seton Hall at Iowa State should be a pretty good game, um, and Xavier at TCU. That was announced a lot. We might have already talked about it, but it was announced in April. So um, the, the conference with only t- 18 league games, namely the Big East and the Big 12, which we discussed, may be part of the, of the Big East uh, rationale with adding UConn is to have a guaranteed 20 conference games. as the Pac-12, the ACC, and the Big Ten have gotten 20 conference games. I think the SEC is also going there. is to be able to not have to worry about scheduling non-conference games um, and so the Big East and the Big 12 have two of these challenges, the Big 12 with the SEC and Big East, and the Big East with the Big 12 and uh, the Big 10, the Gavit games, which is only eight games. Um, yeah. What else? Let's wrap up. Um, a couple other pieces of news. We still we had a late opening with Cleveland State. The Vikings fired Dennis Felton. About half the team quit. 
maybe all the team quit, and they brought another dentist, Dennis Gates, who was uh, one of the top assistants for Leonard Hamilton at uh, Florida State to try to turn things around at a program that's had some ups and downs but has, has had some memorable moments in um, NCAA history, knocking off Indiana in the 1986 NCAA tournament. They also went to the Sweet 16, I think, relatively recently. Um, or maybe I'm not remembering that correctly, but um, the Cleveland State Vikings. We'll see. What, oh, I think Raleigh Massimino actually coached them towards the end of his career as well. Uh, and lastly, Bill Carmody retires. Uh, both uh, Tom and I have, well, Tom wasn't at Columbia, I guess, when Bill Carmody coached at Princeton, but uh, probably still remembers his time at Princeton. When Princeton did amazing things, you know, going into being the top, a top 20 team, being like a four seed in the NCAA tournament, yep. later around to coach at Northwestern. My first year was his first year at Northwestern. Uh, when we met early on and talked at uh, our student center, um, we had a good conversation about high school basketball in Rhode Island, which not many uh, Division One coaches have uh, know much about, but being in the Northeast, he had some knowledge about that. Never went to the NCAA tournament in, um, I believe it was 14 years at Northwestern. Came close on several occasions. Always did it uh, with a lot of class, um, although sometimes hard to watch the combination of the Princeton offense and the one-three-one defense year after year after year. Uh, and then he went to Holy Cross for a couple of years, made the NCAA tournament actually at Holy Cross, which is kind of a, a kick in the petard for uh, Northwestern fans. Of course, Northwestern made a tournament later on. Uh, Marquette assistant Brett Nelson was hired to replace uh, Bill Carmody at Holy Cross. Uh, you, what are your thoughts on, on when you think about Bill Carmody and the long career he had? Well, first of all, a very impressive career to coach at two purple schools uh back to back to back uh no you seriously he uh the holy cross thing was kind of a miracle run i think they won four road games to make the tournament that year uh so uh, i'm happy for him there he had a very good style if it's effective for the most part it definitely worked at princeton they beat unlv in the opening round game the first round game that year um obviously the a good, a good example of how long the arms of Pete Carell have reached into this game. Like, this is a guy, Pete Carell retired in 1996, and his, one of his assistants retired, uh, what was that, 23 years later, so... Good. And an assistant that had been his assistant for 14 yeah, years already. Yeah, so, I mean, this is... Pete Carell is still very involved in the sport, and uh, it's just an example of that. Um, I think he... I think it's... According to um, an article I read, his wife had cancer, so he wasn't traveling to overnight road games. He would just do the home oh, games wow. and practices... So obviously, I can understand why he would want to, uh, um, why he'd want to retire. I think he has nothing to be ashamed of. Obviously, the Northwestern challenge was a tough one, but that's a tough program to, and a tough conference to make a dent in. And of course, they came close. They had some uh, player uh, issues there. I forget the one guy who had to sit out. Kevin Coble. Kevin Coble sat out. That was tough. the teams were right close. If he had that player, play, if Coble had played the full season, he probably would have made the, or been very close to the NCAA tournament. Um, so, yeah, four NIT trips there in 13 years. Um, yeah, the team that made yeah, the cl- team that made the tournament for Holy Cross is five and 13, by the way. Um, so, um, I don't know. I think he's yeah. It's a it's a long career. He's 40 years coaching is a long time to do anything. So, I respect him. He may not be a Hall of Famer, but he certainly has nothing to be ashamed of. And uh, it's tough to win at the. I mean, he took jobs that were not exactly uh, easy slam dunk jobs. It's no Cleveland State, okay. Yeah, his first two years at Princeton, he went a combined 51 and six, didn't lose an Ivy League game, and then uh, finished second the subsequent next year through to be an assistant for 14 seasons. And at Northwestern, um, they came off a one in 17 conference season in 07-08, and then went to four straight NITs. They had two 21 seasons, um, and then they came the closest in 2010-2011. Team uh, was their was his best team and his best shot to go to the NCAA tournament, but. Um, they lost to Ohio State in an overtime game in the Big Ten tournament that year. Ohio State team that was number one in Ken Palm, led by uh, Jared Sullinger. Um, they actually finished the season number one in Ken Palm, even though they lost Sweet 16 that year to Kentucky. Uh, Northwestern had the kind of the, the golden triumvirate of Drew Crawford, Michael Thompson, and John Sherna, um, who were with probably the best set of three players they had at one time ever. Drew Crawford went on to make the uh, NCAA tournament his senior year. Um, notably was about to transfer to some other bigger school as a grad transfer, but then stayed. Um, and, the, you know, the previous year as well, they were, um, I guess it was the, what year was that? There was a year where they lost to Minnesota in the Big Ten tournament where if they won that game, I was pretty convinced they were going to go to the tournament, but um, they didn't. So 
Uh, anyway, I don't know why I'm making it seem so sad. Maybe because I'm a Northwestern fan. But uh, it's it's been a great career for Bill Carmody, um, and I, I hope that his wife is well and that uh, he's able to kind of at least enjoy his retirement. He's uh, 67 years old, so he certainly has, has done enough. I feel like he's always projected a Bill Pullman-type look. The hair. Yeah. The face isn't exactly the same, but I think Bill Pullman might look at Bill Carmody, so. Yeah, I wonder what the odds are. Bill Pullman's 65 years old, so it's the right age if he's going to play, like, modern-day Bill Carmody. <laughs> I'm not sure. He couldn't play, like, young Bill Carmody, but uh, um, I wonder what the odds are of a major motion picture starring uh, someone having to play Bill Carmody. Probably not very good. I think Cleveland State's more likely to make the NCAA tournament next year. Yeah, or we're probably going to have, probably to have a, a motion picture about the defection to the, under the Dennis Felton uh, regime, the former <laughs> coach, than we are to have a, 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 um, yeah. a movie made about Bill Carmody. So, anyway, let's call it there. Yeah. We gave you uh, we gave you more than you've paid for, to be honest. Yeah. Um, much more. Yeah. Um, we appreciate your time and uh, let us know if you have any questions. Yeah. Don't the, forget. What are you not forgetting? Don't forget to follow us. If you, let us know if you have any questions. Follow us at, on Twitter at Double Bonus Pod on Twitter. Uh, doubleponuspod at gmail.com to uh, send us any feedback or questions or if you want to have your email read on the show we'll have a happy discussion about it and uh, rate us and review us iTunes is dead but podcasts are not so you can rate us in the Apple Podcast app and also on Spotify uh, we're on Google Podcasts and uh, wherever fine podcasts are available uh, yeah stay cool Brendan it's yeah. hot out there yeah the, um, as Yogi Berra once uh, said when someone said he looked cool in his new suit new summer suit he said to that person you don't look so hot yourself Tom. someone was mayor Lindsay's wife mayor Lindsay. yeah good uh good good pull there which whose name i don't know let's look before we go i don't want to be one of those men who says uh someone's name and say oh yeah that's his so-and-so's wife without identifying the person's name so i'm gonna look it up mayor Lindsay's wife mary and mayor Ma- Ma- sorry <laughs> mary ann harrison <laughs> Lindsay. Died in 2000, according to this, but also says uh, New York Times obituary is from 2004, so they better uh, get that sorted out. But we'll have an update on that on the next show. <laughs> yeah, the um, John Lindsay, his uh, her husband, um, also died in 2000, if, if Mary Harrison Lindsay died in 2000 as well. John Lindsay uh, was a Republican for 20 years and then a Democrat for 29 years. Um, in case oh, so, so she died in 04 and he died in 2000. There we go. Cleared up. Okay, there we have it. Yeah. So they were married for 51 years. Congratulations to the Lindsays. <laughs> for 50, 50 years of, uh, of marriage um, and uh, one quip by Yogi Bear. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>